Hello and welcome to Media Geek, your weekly look at the world of grassroots and independent media, as well as a critical look at our media environment. My name is Paul Reismandel. I'm your host. Producer Drew Tarico is at the controls. On today's program, an exodus at the Federal Communications Commission and challenging a Fox TV license. We'll discuss some changes that went on at the FCC just this week, in addition to the previously announced exit of Michael Powell, the chair. And we'll also talk to Jane Acree and Steve Wilson. They're two journalists who used to work for Fox TV 13 in Tampa. They are now challenging that station's license with the FCC. All that on today's Media Geek. Do stay tuned. So the big news in the media world this week is that the FCC will not be pursuing a challenge in the Supreme Court of a Third Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that overturned its revised and loosened media ownership rules. And those media ownership rules were passed by the FCC in June of 2003. Um, They were passed to much public outcry, and they were passed only along party lines, which meant the three Republican commissioners on the FCC voted for them, and the two Democratic commissioners voted against them. And that happened after a a very... uh, public and contentious campaign made to make the FCC listen to people's concerns about media concentration, media ownership, and a a growing deafness by then-chair Michael Powell to even hearing what the public had to say, including even hearing what his own Democratic commissioners had to say, as they they held many uh, sort of unofficial FCC public hearings on the issue of ownership, which Michael Powell refused to attend. Now, uh, the Prometheus Radio Project challenged these changes in court mm-hmm. to the media ownership rules, and the Third Circuit of Court of Appeals ruled for the, pla- for the uh, plaintiffs, the uh, Prometheus Radio Project, and sent the rules back to the FCC and said, you've got to rewrite them and you've got to re-justify them. Monday, January 31st, is the deadline for the FCC and the U.S. Justice Department to file their uh, petition with the Supreme Court asking them to review this decision and announced on the 27th of January they will not be doing it. And uh, it's interesting, Drew, because uh-huh. you see, this you can't view these things in a vacuum. Right. Because uh, the FCC has been sort of hedging for the last few months as to whether or not it would pursue a uh, Supreme Court appeal of the, of these rules. And, of course, now we heard last week, as reported here in Media Geek, that Michael Powell is actually stepping down as chair from the FCC. Following him out the door, announced this week, is Ken Faree, who is the chair of the Media Bureau, which is the bureau which would be in charge of media ownership rules uh, in terms of, of really, you know, in terms of the bureaucrats who sit down and work them out and the bureaucrats who oversee their effect on the broadcast industry. Um, and he is following Michael Powell out as well. And he's been a very loyal lieutenant to Michael Powell. And indeed, if it was going to be any bureau within the FCC who would be doing the work in pursuing this appeal, it is the media bureau. So I don't think these things are disconnected at all. And it's very interesting that the FCC is now announcing that they are not going to be pursuing this appeal. Does this look like it's some sort of a changing of the guard then, or at least uh, 
At least a change of agenda. I mean, you've had these two guys out there. It's the door. a changing of the guard and changing of the agenda. Uh-huh. I mean, because this is really the Justice Department who acts as the legal counsel to the FCC in these cases, saying that they will not be pursuing it. I think this is an administration decision, Bush administration decision. And I think they all are connected together in having watched this go down. Because all of last year, as we mentioned last week, there was talk Michael Powell will be stepping down or he won't be stepping down. And he really made media ownership deregulation a key part of his chairship of his campaign and by all counts the way he pursued it the way the fcc did it was a failure it was a failure because it was struck down by the courts it was a failure in that it brought the a kind of public uproar which the fcc does not normally ever yeah. bring about and also a failure because it, the public uproar went into congress and got many prominent republican congress people upset in addition to many prominent democratic Congress people. And this is not what the Bush administration wants from its FCC. Uh, the Bush administration, by all counts, really doesn't pay a lot of attention to telecom or to uh, what goes on in, in communications and broadcasts. Way less attention, in fact, than, than the Clinton administration paid to it, although, and by and large, the Clinton administration was more interested in telecom and internet issues. Mm-hmm. They really don't want to hear too many squeaks out of the FCC, I think. And so I think if, if we were thinking that maybe Powell was pushed, because the announcement came after the inauguration and after the election, not, you know, at the same time, say, his father, Colin Powell's announcement happened, which was, you know, during the normal churn between two uh, terms. Mm-hmm. I think it look, it's looking more like this is a package deal, that maybe the big issue here was, is the Bush administration going to push the media ownership rules to the Supreme Court and try and get the FCC's rules upheld? Or are they going to cut their losses and run? And I think cutting their losses and running means also dumping the man behind it and and his lieutenant mm-hmm. in all of this. I do think that it all is very related and uh that is why we're hearing this news this week. It's oh. it's you know just 10 days before this deadline to file the petition Michael Powell is out and just days before Ken Free head of the media bureau is oh. out. So it seems like they were really waiting till the the end of the road to really make the decision on this one. Oh yeah. Because I'm sure it's been sort of a, a it's been a political headache for Bush. Um and it's out of character, I feel, in a way, for the Bush administration to actually yield to that kind of political pressure, because in so many other areas, they haven't. Well, I think, you know, I think you can't uh, give them not, not think they're not being strategic. And, yeah. and it's a matter of how much effort, how much, you know, mileage they want to get out of this. And, it, and, and you, know, you know, nevertheless, they have to work with their own party on this. They have mm-hmm. to work with... The uh, with Ted Stevens, the head, of, the new head of this of the Senate Commerce Committee, they still have to work with John McCain, the, who who is still on the Commerce Committee, though he's not the, not the chair any longer. You still have to work with various party operatives, and they have to be able to go back to their constituents and give a report of why they do or do not support this. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and so it's always a big give or take. And I think that this is not high on the Bush agenda. It may be high on other people's agendas, but I don't think it's high on the Bush agenda. Now, what's interesting, of course, is it does, this does not mean the rules will not be challenged in the Supreme Court. Um, and it was announced then uh, as well that the National Association of Broadcasters, as well as the Tribune Company, Fox, Viacom, CBS, and GENBC intend to pursue a challenge of the third court decision themselves I and see. are filing a petition with the Supreme Court to do so. So this is not over. 
but it is over with regard to the Bush administration. And who knows what kind of talks have gone on, you know, behind closed doors between the administration and these various uh, these various and sundry media companies. It may be that they don't need the Bush administration's support, or they are horse trading. For various other things. You don't really know what's sure. going on behind closed doors. We don't have that kind of access. Exactly. But the challenge will continue. But in the meantime, the FCC itself has to comply with the Third Circuit Court order, which means they have to go back, re- do re-review of the changes that they made in June 2003, answer some questions the court gave them, and rewrite the rules changes. This process does not stop. There will be new media ownership rules. It's just now a whole new process to do that. And therefore, both uh, Democratic uh, FCC commissioners, uh, Jonathan Adelstein and Michael Copps, have themselves said they, they're hoping that their colleagues will choose to do a thorough review with more public input in doing this so that they don't repeat the mistakes of the Powell FCC in the mm-hmm. first time around. Um, and I know that organizations like Free Press and other uh, media reform organizations will be turning up the pressure because this doesn't mean it's over. This doesn't mean that the me- new media rules, the loosened media rules are gone. It just means that they're back for review. And so here's another opportunity to rewrite them and possibly rewrite them better if the FCC uh, is willing. And this is all going to fall on whoever becomes the new FCC chair. And so they're really going to have their work cut out for them. Yes. <laughs> and that's so the next step is we all go looking in who is next. And that will be all the next betting until we find out for sure and listening to all the leaks out of Washington. And you are listening to Media Geek. I'm Paul Reesmanel, your host. Drew Tarico is there on the controls. And you can check us out online at www.mediageek.org. There's the Media Geek blog, which is full of news that can't quite make it onto the program, as well as maybe more scathing views from. Yours truly, you can send along comments to Paul at MediaGeek.org. Coming up in just a moment, we'll be hearing from Jane Acree and Steve Wilson, reporters, investigative journalists, who are challenging the license of a Fox TV station in Tampa, Florida. Do stay tuned. One of the interesting things that's happening in the, on the media reform front is that uh, many organizations are now taking aim at station licenses. Every eight years or so, uh, broadcast stations get their licenses renewed. And there's a period in which the FCC accepts public comments about the stations, their performance, and especially their performance with regard to the public interest. Much forgotten in today's modern media world, it is nevertheless something which stations are beholden to in words, if not in actuality, but that all remains to be seen when people actually challenge the licenses. And so we have two journalists, Jane Acree and Steve Wilson, who used to be employed by Fox 13 WTVT in Tampa, Florida, and who were dismissed over a story that they were pursuing on bovine growth hormone and its effects on people through the milk produced by cows who've been injected by it. And because of their experiences with Fox, believe that this station is not acting in the public interest. And as a result, they are filing a challenge to this station's license. It's something, as you'll hear, that has not been done many times before and maybe another way to reclaim a little bit of our media. So now we'll hear this interview with Steve Wilson and Jane Acree. The both of you are challenging the license 
of a Fox television station in Tampa, Florida, WTVT. Can you tell me why you're doing that? Well, we're doing it because our experience there has led us to conclude that they're not operating the station in the public interest. Uh, specifically, as investigative reporters, we were pressured by the management of the television station to broadcast what we knew and well-documented to be false and distorted news reports. Uh, the station had been pressured by uh, someone who uh, had been threatening to sue and by advertisers who had been threatening to uh, drop advertising. And in response, they wanted to not just soften a story and not sweep it under the rug, but put it on the air with information that would not offend the advertisers and the potential litigant, but seriously mislead. And, and we maintain lie to the viewers. Now, this is something, though, you don't hear of too often, people challenging the licenses of uh, television stations uh, for, for, for any reason, but especially uh, for their conduct in journalism. Uh, you do hear about challenging um, licenses, and, and they're all on an eight-year program, so you're hearing a lot about it now because they're all coming up for renewal, mm -hmm. but you're hearing about it more in the case of indecency. Um, this is the first time um, in a long time that it's been challenged for distorting the news. I think the last time that this sort of a petition was filed was in 1975 in a case called Seraphin, who charged that uh, CBS was distorting the news um, in a report on 60 Minutes. And how did that challenge go? The uh, FCC rejected it, mm -hmm. and uh, they appealed, and the appellate court ordered the FCC to go back and re-examine the issues. So it went farther than any case ever had, but ultimately uh, the FCC decided that there was no news distortion. The FCC response was uh, indicative of the question that you raise, and, and, and that is you don't see many of these, and you don't see many because the FCC had gotten itself into a situation where, as with so many other issues, it just dismissed such complaints out of hand. Mm -hmm. And the significance of the Seraphin complaint, which involved, a, as Jane said, a 60 Minutes broadcast, was that when the FCC did dismiss it virtually out of hand, the higher court said, hey, wait a minute, your job is to review this stuff. Go back and review it. At that point, before a review could be completed, 60 Minutes reached a settlement uh, with a complainant, and the whole thing became moot. But essentially, it opened the door, and it said to the FCC, you can't just brush this stuff off. This is why you exist. So specifically, in, in your case, you both worked for WTVT and worked on an investigative story, um, which, as, as you just alluded to before, uh, your management uh, did not want to air as, as you had were, were intending to report it. Can you give us more background on that case? Uh, yes. We had uh, produced a four-part series, and... Um it went through initial review, and that means the lawyers looked at it and they signed off on it, to, so much so to the point that the station was putting on the air promos for you know the viewing public to make sure they tuned in Monday at 6 o'clock to see the series. Um, after the Monsanto letters arrived, and by the way, people can see them on the website that we have, which is... Uh, foxbghsuit.com. And so, so this report was on bovine growth hormone. Yes, it is. Monsanto's product. And the uh, Monsanto sent two very strongly worded letters uh, a week apart uh, that said essentially uh, cease and desist. Your reporters are idiots and their sources are incompetent. And the second letter from Monsanto said that uh, there will be dire consequences if the story airs in Florida, which is, you know, n not a veiled threat to sue. 
Mm-hmm. And after that, all of a sudden, the story that had been approved for air now all of a sudden was unapproved for air, and we went back into a re-editing session that lasted eight months, and during which time they wanted to take out the sum and substance of what we had found, uh, let the Monsanto point of view stand unrefuted, and um, it, it was just amazing. Every single slice and jab they made at that piece was intended to weaken it, and we contended to falsify it. I mean, unfortunately, a broadcaster can weaken a story, and they can even choose not to do a story, but they can't cross the line and tell you to say something that is not true. And that's where we contend and went to trial on the basis uh, that they were pressuring us to lie on the air. And what was the result of that trial? Um, it was. Uh, it took several years to get to trial, but uh, we were tr- basically uh, separate plaintiffs, and um, the jury found that uh, I had proven that I was terminated because I threatened to disclose to the Federal Communications Commission the broadcast of a false, distorted, or slanted news report, which I believed would violate the prohibition against intentionally falsifying the news. Um, they, the jury did not find in favor of Steve, but they found in favor of me, which is kind of a strange thing because it was the same case. But mm-hmm. uh, we think it's cause, because Steve was representing himself in court. But the, the point we were making was that we were retaliated against for uh, resisting a, a story that had been falsified, and the jury agreed with mm-hmm. with at least me on that count. So what later happened was um, Fox immediately filed an appeal on the basis that there's technically no law, rule, or regulation against news distortion. Therefore, it's not a whistleblower violation, which is kind of a, a shocking allegation uh, or a claim for a news organization. Since to make, they, nonetheless, they did. <laughs> they have to almost admit that they were distorting or lying in order to, to say that. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing. Uh, and they did do that. That's mm-hmm. exactly the words they used. Um, and uh, the appellate panel of three judges eventually agreed with them. Agreed with Fox. Okay. Wow. And so what is the specific falsity? What, what was it that, that Fox wanted to report or did report that, that you believe is false? Well, a number of things. I mean, it went on for eight months, so it just went back and forth and back and forth. But, I mean, for example, they said take out all references to cancer. And that's more of a sin of omission, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, they said, go ahead and, and repeat the Monsanto claim that this is the same wholesome product that it's always been, the milk, that mm-hmm. is from treated cows. And, uh, you know, we had a problem with that because our research and Monsanto's own research shows that the milk from cows treated with artificial bovine growth hormone have a higher amount of a spinoff hormone called IGF-1. And that ends up in the milk, and that is consumed by people who are consuming treated milk. And uh, they said, say the milk is the same wholesome product. And, you know, we said, you can't say that because it's not true. And, you know, here's the documentation, you know, study after study, Monsanto's own study. Well, they didn't want to hear that. They said, uh, don't say that Europe is concerned and has banned the drug uh, based on human health concerns. And we said, well, here's something from Parliament that says that's exactly why they're concerned about it. Don't say that. Call it economic concerns. It just it just went on and on and mm-hmm. back and forth like that for a very long time. And basically, they wanted to not only gut the story, but as I said, make it false and distorted. And how common is it in uh, investigative television journalism that uh, there is this kind of pushback from companies, corporations, organizations, which uh, are going to have some of their secrets revealed? I think it happens every day. 
we don't hear about it, um, but it happens all the time. You know, one of the turning points, I think, was when, uh, you might recall years ago when ABC News went into Food Line and did an investigation about some of the shoddy and unsafe health practices that were going on in the meat counter. And they caught it, they caught it on camera, um, and it's stuff that would just make your stomach turn. Yet, when Food Lion sued, they won. Mm-hmm. Uh, they won based on some obscure law that if you're an employee, you can't go in and, and misstate what your purpose is in being an employee, some sort of a, uh, employment law like that. But nonetheless, it gave not only Food Lion, but other corporations that want to challenge news, um, get, you know, it gave them added resolve that they could go ahead and, you know, even in the face of unrefutable evidence, go ahead and win a case. Mm-hmm. And so, so in your experience in, in, in television journalism, had you seen these sorts of uh, lawyer-written letters uh, filed before? Yes. And, and, and did they typically have a, have a strong effect, or did more often management decide to go forward with stories? You know, a good news organization expects them. Mm-hmm. And if they have reviewed the material that the reporters handed in, if they look at the documentation, uh, if they trust their reporter, they send back a standard letter, a template letter saying, thank you very much for your concerns, we're looking into it, da-da-da-da. You know, we want to assure you that we have the highest standards of broadcast journalism and will not air anything that we know to be uh, untrue. Oh, again, again, this issue of falsity and truth, isn't it? <laughs> Only this time they, they're assuring it to the uh, to the corporate uh, party who is uh, who is complaining. Mm-hmm. Right. You know what's so significant in our case? I think is the fact that I've been in this business for more than thirty years, and it's not unheard of for a television station, uh, even a network, to sweep a story under the rug when it's something that you know affects their own personal interest or their corporate interest. Uh, and the story just doesn't get told. I mean, that's kind of an open secret in the business. That's why you don't see investigations of certain issues. That's why you won't see, for instance, NBC investigating itself or its parent company, General Electric, and how it might be polluting the Hudson River. They don't devote a lot of time and resources to that. And, th- and that's reprehensible in the sense that, you know, they're there to serve the public interest and they're making millions and millions of dollars off that broadcast license. They ought to put the public interest first. But what was so egregious in this case and what was so unusual in this case is that it's the first time that I've ever known that a reporter has been asked to deliberately lie that a television station or news organization has said, no, we're not going to sweep it under the rug. And in our case, they decided not to do what they said because they were afraid we'd tell people. I mean, the first thing we were asked was, you know, what, do we, what would you do if we kill the story? Would you, would you tell anybody? And, and instead of sweeping it under the rug and taking the hit for covering it up, they decided they'd simply pressure us into broadcasting a story that wasn't true but would keep the advertisers and the litigants happy. And so you're contending that in, in airing what you believe, and then actually you found a jury to believe, is false information, is an example of the station not acting in the public interest, which is something which they're required to do under the statutes of the Telecommunications Act. Absolutely. They have a license to, to run their business. You know, it's not like going out and starting up a newspaper. You know, you could go down to Kinko's, I suppose, and Xerox 100 copies of your own newspaper and pass it out for free or for, for fee. It, it wouldn't matter. Anybody can have a newspaper. But not everybody in town can operate a television station because there is a very limited resource there. 
and and it's a public resource. It's like when logging companies go into our national forest and cut down trees that are owned by the citizens, or when when farmers graze their cattle on federal land. These are public resources, and in exchange for having the license to be one of the few who can actually use the public resource of a television station, they must operate the station in the public interest. It is not in the public interest to lie to people. And have you received any feedback, either from the station or from other interested parties, on your challenge? Well, the way it works is you file your petition to deny, and then the station uh, has 30 days to respond, and the 30-day deadline will be coming up here around the 3rd or 4th of February, I think it is. Um, So we have not seen the station's formal response. Of course, in the papers, they said we would never do such a thing. We don't operate our station that way. We have the highest standards of good journalism, which, you know, is pretty much what you'd expect to hear. Um, But, you know, in this case, there's a record. In this case, the people who are making the complaints are not people who just watch television and think they're getting a distorted view. We were insiders. We were there. We have the documents. We have the memos. We have the scripts. We have all of that which the commission ought to rely upon to determine whether or not the charges and the claims is true. And, uh, you know, that's what we're hoping they will do, that they won't simply just brush it off. And let me also say that, you know, there are no bigger supporters of the First Amendment than we are. I mean, you know, the, the, the defense to which many people jump is, oh, geez, do you want the government being the news editor? No, I don't want the government being the news editor, and I value the First Amendment, as all journalists and all citizens do or should. But, you know, the First Amendment is not a license to lie. The First Amendment is not so all-embracing that you can take a television station, you can use the public airwaves, and you can deliberately lie to people and say, well, that's my First Amendment right to do so. That's the argument that Fox is making. That's how they got the jury verdict overturned. The court never found that the jury was wrong when they concluded that the story we were pressured to broadcast was false, distorted, or slanted. That didn't happen. What happened was that the appellate court, on what they call a threshold issue, bought the Fox argument that it's not illegal to lie on television. There is no law, rule, or regulation that makes it against the law for them to deliberately lie. And therefore, if it wasn't a violation of a law that we were complaining about, we should never have received protection as whistleblowers in the first place, and therefore the jury verdict is overturned. Well, you know, I don't know what would make me more ashamed, uh, you know, working for a company that deliberately distorts the news or working for one that then goes out and argues, well, it's not illegal to lie, and even though we would never lie, and we didn't lie this time, despite what the jury found, uh, technically, it's not against the law because the First Amendment covers us. That's despicable. And if there are uh, people listening who are moved by what you're saying, um, how can they learn more or perhaps even uh, lend a hand? Well, as Jane said, we have a website. Uh, all the information, we try to keep it updated. We're in desperate need of a webmaster. I think we've worn ours out. All of the information and the access to the petition to deny and the access to uh, everything that has transpired is there. It's www dot fox bgh suit bgh is in bovine growth hormone suit is in lawsuit fox bgh suit dot com and uh, people email us with support we sure appreciate that we have established a fund which pays our legal fees you know when we started this we're now in our eighth year when we started this we were told it could take a year and fifty thousand dollars and we said at the time <laughs> 
you know, we'll pay the 50000 If this is what we can do to help journalism, uh, we'll go ahead and pay the 50000 out of our savings. Well, let me tell you, anybody who's been involved with a lawsuit knows 50000 you know, goes like the wind. We were up to over 200000 when we finally decided to put our pride aside and say to people, if you think one family, no matter how well off they may be, and I'm certainly not wealthy by any means, but I'm not pleading poverty either, if you think one family should not bear the burden of fighting the likes of Rupert Murdoch and the biggest, richest media empire in the world, you can help us. And we've accepted mostly small contributions. We've spent every dime on paying for lawyers for the suit. And, uh, you know, we've appreciated all that we've gotten, and we're still far behind. But uh, uh, anybody who wants information, anybody who wants to just send us a note, anybody who wants to do uh, more, uh, the website is the place. And also we can send you how to write to the FCC and the number, uh, the application file number. We can put that on your website as well so people can reference it and do it properly and mail a letter into the FCC. Sure, we'd be glad to do that. Great. Well, Jane Acres, Steve Wilson, thank you very much for talking to us. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate being on your air. That brings to a close another edition of Media Geek. We'll be back in one week with more news and views on our media environment. In the meantime, check out Media Geek on the web at www.mediageek.org. There you can read the Media Geek blog for news that can't fit onto the show, as well as download archive episodes of the program in MP3 in the open-source Vorbis format. If you have any comments about the program, please send them to paul at mediageek.org. I'm host and executive producer Paul Reismandel. Our producer is Drew Tarico. Media Geek is produced live at community radio station WEFT in Champaign, Illinois. Some pre-production happens at the Urbana-Champaign Independent Media Center. Media Geek is also heard on KRFP, Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, and on KQRP in Salida, California. And Media Geek is free to broadcast on your local non-commercial station, too. To inquire, please send email to paul at mediageek.org. Thanks for tuning in.